We've concluded chapter one, and now we are beginning in chapter two of six. And this first Mishnah, chapter two, Mishnah one, when I was researching this Mishnah, it became clear to me that really we could have like four separate sessions on this Mishnah. Because first of all, the personality who is going to be delivering us this message, one of the most significant personalities in Jewish history. And in fact, on my other podcast, the Jewish History Podcast, I have a whole podcast dedicated to just his story and his accomplishments. That's, of course, Rabbi Judah the Prince, who is just called Rabbi or Rebbe because of his significant his significance to the Jewish people. They just gave him the title. He's the rabbi of all the Jewish people. If you just say rabbi or holy rabbi or holy teacher, it's referring to him because he's like the rabbi of them all. Uh, so really, I just want to say as a disclaimer before we begin, we're not doing it. It's due justice by trying to do it all in one in one sitting. But we'll still try. So again, like we always do, we're going to read the Mishnah, and then we're going to give a little bit of backstory of, of Rabbi Judah the Prince, the author of the Mishnah, and then we'll try to go through the Mishnah piece by piece and see what we could learn and maybe find lessons that we can apply to our lives. So the Mishnah begins, Rabbi Omer, Rabbi says, Rabbi Judah the Prince says, Ezu derech yeshara sheyavar lo ha'adam, which is the proper path that a man, or that a person should choose. And he answers, Kol lo min ha'adam. Anything that is a credit to the one who does it and earns him the esteem from other people. Be as scrupulous in doing a minor mitzvah as in doing a major mitzvah. Because you don't know the reward of various mitzvahs. And you should calculate the cost, the loss of a mitzvah against its rewards. And the reward of a sin against its cost. And finally, look at three things or consider three things. And you'll, you won't come to sin. What are these three things you should look at and never sin? Know what's above you. Ein roa, a watchful eye, the ozen shamas, and a listening ear, the chomasecha, the sefer, nechtavan, and all your deeds are written in a book. So this is the teaching of Rabbi Judah the Prince. It's it seems like it's it's a whole bunch of teachings that are all uh, written into one Mishnah. So the first thing we need to know about Rabbi Judah the Prince is uh, what the Talmud says about him, which is kind of striking. The Talmud says. That on the day that Rabbi Akiva died, Rabbi Judah the Prince was born. And the way the Talmud frames it is based upon a verse, that when the sun sets, it rises someplace else. When the sun sets in one area, it's always rising at the same time. And the idea is that the sun is always covering a certain amount of, providing light to a certain amount of, of, of the world. It's just not necessarily distributed in the same location. Here, it is concealed and there it is revealed. And the Talmud builds a whole idea out of this, is that the Almighty always gives, like like the sun, like visionaries to our nation that are going to guide us in our time of need. So we had the great Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, of course, is, is the most significant Torah personality of that era, of the uh, early second century time period, a time period, like we mentioned in previous times, which was very difficult. Uh, the Jews were living under 
iron Roman rule and very uh, they had to face very harsh decrees and restrictions on their way of life. And they've had this remarkable that specifically in a time where there's so much difficulties and challenges, there are so many great personalities that help the nation navigate these very difficult times. And according to the Talmud, that's not a coincidence. The Almighty is going to always give our people the leadership that is needed to help us in a given situation. In fact, there's a principle found elsewhere that every generation is given the kinds of leadership that fits the needs of the time. You know, if we had Rabbi Kiva today, we'd be very lucky, of course, but he's not tailored to our time. The leaders that we have today are the ones that are tailored to our time and, and that are going to be vital, instrumental, helping us achieve whatever it is we need to achieve at a given point in time. So the Talmud says, Rabbi Kiva dies, that same day Rabbi Judah the Prince is born. Now, does that mean that it was actually the same day? Not necessarily. It just means, because it gives a whole list. When this person died, that person was born. And this person died. It means that, that when the, the era, the sun set on the era of Rabbi Tiva, the sun arose on the era of Rabbi Judah, the prince. And like we mentioned in, in, in last time, uh, he was the son of the previous Mishnah that we saw, uh, Rabbi Shimon and Gamaliel. And he's a direct descendant of Hillel and a direct descendant of of King David. In the first century before the Common Era, there was a shift that happened. And, and that is uh, because the Jewish kings, the Jews didn't have kings anymore. The Hasmonean Era was over. There's no Jewish kings. Now they have Herod, who is kind of a quasi-Roman king. Even though he thinks he's Jewish, he's not really Jewish. Or he is, he isn't. This whole question was his conversion, so to speak. Was it valid? Uh, but at that time, there was a decision made that we're going to assure that at all points in time in future history, and indeed it lasted for hundreds of years, one of the leadership positions of the nation is going to be the Nasi, the president or the prince, and they're going to be a direct representative of King David because that is the line of monarchy in our people, and therefore it's going to be like a counterweight. Because we don't have legitimate kings or Jewish kings, we're going to try to institute that one of the offices of Leadership is going to be held by a Davidic descendant, and therefore that's going to be like a like kind of give us our, our, a boost to the national morale. One of our leaders is kind of like a king, and they're actually real. They're the real deal because they come from King David. So Rabbi Judah the Prince and many of the teachers that we've had in the previous Mishnahs, it's a direct line. Hillel, and then Shimon, and then Gamliel, and then Shimon, and Gamliel, and then of course Rabbi Judah the Prince, and onward. And this lasted for hundreds of years, until the middle of the 4th century. So about 400 years from Hillel until uh, actually Hillel II, who was the last prince in the land of Israel of Davidic descent. Uh, and that's, of course, a very also a very challenging time in Jewish history when the Sanhedrin had to disband and the Jewish community in Israel was very scattered and very threadbare because of the conditions in the time. And that's why Torah... And Jewish communities flourished in Babylon as they depreciated in the land of Israel. But these Nasi, the Nasi was always in the land of Israel and always at the helm of the Jewish leadership, which was in the Sanhedrin, in the high court. Once the temple's destroyed, once there's no monarchy, the power and the leadership goes there. Now he, Rabbi Judah the Prince, was of course a great Torah scholar uh, and his teachers, the great students of Rabbi 
Akiva, Rabbi Akiva students is Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Meir, amongst others. They're all the teachers of Rabbi Judah the prince. But he becomes the prince of the nation after his father passes. And it's a very fortuitous time in history because there is going to be a relative lull in Roman hostility to the Jewish people. That's number one, very significant, even though there's there's been about a a century, even a century and a half of very harsh Roman treatment of their Jewish subjects. At the end of the second century, when Rabbi Judah the Prince is going to be coronated and going to lead the nation as prince, there's going to be relative lull, relative quiet. That's number one. Number two, he was a man who, uh, the way the Torah describes it, it's Torah Vigdula Bemakamechad, which means Torah greatness and also immense personal wealth coalesced in one person. And the Talmud says there's only a few times in Jewish history that we've had some leader that actually has it all. They have the political might, they have the material ability, they have the Torah greatness, and all that is in one person, and therefore they have really the cards to make a, a an important paradigm shift in the nation. So Moshe, Moshe was incredibly wealthy, greatest Torah scholar, greatest prophet. He was the one at, you know, he was the one of the first ones. Rabbi Judah the Prince is the next one. He's the one who has Torah and greatness, Torah and wealth, all in one person. And therefore, that affords him a lot of latitude to make big decisions. And it happened again in the times of Rav Ashi, who's going to be the architect of the Talmud, he too is going to have this magical combination of Torah and greatness in one. But here we see, so again, Romans are allowing the Jews to live at relative peace. He's going to have immense personal wealth, uh, being the unquestioned political and spiritual leader of the people, being the, maybe the greatest Torah teacher of his time, and critically, going to be quite good friends with a Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. Marcus Aurelius is the emperor from the year 161 to the year 180. And like we said last time, they were like childhood friends and they had a very close personal relationship. According to the Talmud, they would study Torah together. There was a tunnel connecting the palace of Antoninus with Rabbi Judah the Prince's residence. And he would sneak under there and go study Torah in secret. Uh, Maybe he even converted, and therefore he's so friendly uh, and benevolent to the Jewish cause and friendly with their leader, he allows something unprecedented. He allows Rabbi Judah the Prince to gather all the Torah scholars from the whole world and bring them to like a a, a 20-year convention, which is the convention that in which they're going to undertake this immense collaborative scholastic effort that's unparalleled. Uh, they're going to try to make a version of the Oral Torah or one part of the Oral Torah called the Mishnah and make it or convert it from being oral to being written. They're going to write down the Mishnah. And this is a collection of 63 books uh, broken down into six general categories. The six general categories are Zeraim, which is agricultural laws. There's many laws relating to land cultivating the land. Uh, this week's Parsha, for example, we have laws of when you're a farmer and you have to leave a corner of your field to the poor people, for example. That's one of the laws. 
one of the books, the book of Peya, which is the, what are the laws relating to allowing the poor people coming and, t- t- and taking the, the produce and the grain from the corner of your field. But that's agricultural laws. Most of them today don't apply outside of Israel, but they do apply in Israel because those laws generally apply only in the land of Israel. Uh, the next order is the books related to time. So, for example, every every seven days we have Shabbos. That's a time-bound mitzvah. And therefore, there's a book in the in the Talmud, in the Mishnah, called Shabbos. But there's one for Pesach, and one for Sukkot, and one for Rosh Hashanah, and one for Purim, uh, one for coming to the temple that you do uh, pilgrimages, etc. Uh, then there is Nazikian interpersonal laws, civil law, property law, things like that. Uh, Nashim, which is marital law, so marriage, divorce, marital contracts, etc. Uh, finally, the last two are the ritualistic law, which is like sacrificial law, and finally, the law of purity, laws of purity and impurity. This effort uh, to take the collective wisdom and knowledge of the Jewish nation that is that is amassed and refined and, and perpetuated over centuries and millennia, essentially, since the times of Moshe, to try to write a, a brief summary of each law in a, an authoritative text that's going to be accepted by the entire Jewish nation. So it's a fantastic achievement to, to take like uh, uh, something which was pliable, which was maneuverable, which was malleable, which was conveyed in an oral fashion, and to try to find a way to condense that and to limit that and to offer a succinct version of that incredible achievement. And it's interesting I, I gave a whole series on this particular question, but there was a reason why the Torah, the oral Torah was oral. And therefore, the burden of proof, the onus was on Rabbi Judah the Prince to justify this decision. Because in fact, there is a Torah prohibition against writing down the oral Torah. And the reason is because that, again, this is a big subject. I have entire series on these questions, but there is an interplay. There's a written Torah, oral Torah, and they together are able to ensure that the ideas and the laws are perpetuated accurately. But he rationalized it by saying, which is a verse in Psalms, it is a time to act for God, because otherwise Torah will be destroyed. Indeed, this was a relatively quiet time in Jewish history, but it is sandwiched between times of great persecution and dispersal for the Jewish nation. And therefore, Rabbi Judah the Prince and the people of his court and all the members of the Sanhedrin that were with them, they recognized that this is an opportunity that may not come again, an opportunity to ensure, to shield the nation against future situations, future realities, future times when there's not going to be these incredible opportunities to teach Torah and to have a rabbi gathering his students and teaching it over and perpetuating oral Torah in a way that was possible prior. And the way that's possible now, we have to prevent the Torah from being forgotten entirely. And therefore, they reasoned, let's try to do it with the Mishnah. It's not a radical suggestion uh, to argue that if not for that decision, like we wouldn't be sitting here today. Because if 
if there wasn't a way to take Torah or at least a version of Torah or, version, or a, a, a slice of oral Torah to take it with you when you're fleeing and to be able to quickly memorize all of written Torah in a way that is – it's not so uh, labor-intensive even though it kind of is but not as much as it would be doing it all, all by heart. And there wasn't like a kind of a reference point that all of the Jewish nation agrees upon. Who knows what would have happened and who knows what would have kept the Jewish nation united uh, under the flag of one indivisible Torah. Who knows if we would be able to have the strength and the resolve and the wherewithal to forge ahead united as one community in so many different places under so many different harsh conditions. You've had and of course, this when the Talmud was written, that was you know this on a you know, even a grander scale because the Talmud, that's the writing of the other part of the Oral Torah, the explanation of the Mishnah, the understanding, the application, the explication of the Mishnah in a way that is too transferable and portable. And of course, today the Talmud is written is published in seventy three hefty volumes, which are available at the Torch Center if you want to come check it out in English. Um, but that is kind of the second step when it became even more difficult to teach even parts of the oral Torah in a consistent way. That too was written. But this all was began, it all began with Rabbi Judah the Prince. And therefore he is viewed, uh, this is of course his major accomplishment to write down to or art, to be the architect of the Mishnah to collaborate along with thousands of scholars. To, to articulate in a concise, succinct way the laws of the Torah in a way that is, is brief, clear, and portable. And thus, with only 63 small books, it's like 521 or 23 chapters, uh, you have oral Torah with you, the laws, you could take them and run with if need be. So now this, this Mishnah that Rebbe or Rabbi Judah the Prince is going to teach us in my assessment, it really, like, if you only needed one Mishnah or one teaching that really could guide you in life and give you everything you need to do, I think this is, this is maybe one, a good candidate because it covers, it hits so many notes of the Torah ideals, but specifically how to integrate them, how to implement them into your life and how to make sure that you're living the life that the Almighty wants you, wants you to live and that you're maximizing your opportunities here in this world. So we're going to read the Mishnah and then we'll go through piece by piece. Rabbi Omer, Rabbi Judah the Prince says, Ezohi adam. What is the proper path that a person should choose? You have maybe multiple options to choose multiple paths. Which one should you choose? Everything that is a credit to those who do it and earns him esteem from other people. Now, the way they translated this, they did it because they're tiptoeing around a problem. Because all the commentators are trying to figure out what does this mean? That which path should you choose? The path that is glorious or gives you credit or gives you esteem from yourself and from other people. It's, it's, it's a major sort. There's, there's maybe a hundred different explanations onto what this exactly means. We're going to go through a few of them. But they, they try, they try to tiptoe around it by trying to give the most neutral translation of what Tiferes. Tiferes means glory, means honor. They give it credit here because that's a, a more middling definition and it gives them more flexibility to, to apply to whatever interpretation we want to offer. Okay, so we'll see that in a second. Vahavizar kala kvachamura. And you should be fastidious. You should be scrupulous 
in doing a minor mitzvah as in doing a major mitzvah. Why? Because you don't know the reward of various mitzvos. We know that there is a hierarchy of mitzvos. There are some mitzvos that are much more important. There's like the three cardinal sins, and there's like the, the Ten Commandments, and then there's other mitzvos which are less important, but they're all important. And we don't really know the exact demarcation of what reward is assigned to which mitzvah, and therefore we have to be as fastidious in each mitzvah, even the more minor ones, as we would be with major ones, because we don't know the reward. Okay, that's the next thing he says. And you should calculate the loss of a mitzvah against its reward. When you do a mitzvah, you're going to lose something, but you're going to gain something. It's every choice you have, there's going to be trade-offs. And when you do a mitzvah, so you, some of you gain and some of you lose. And what Rabbi Judah the Prince is advising us here to make that calculation, try to figure out, okay, what do I gain by doing the mitzvah? And what am I forfeiting? What am I giving up by doing the mitzvah and not doing something else? And that's an important calculation to make, uh, that cost-benefit analysis, because it'll help you. And similarly, in, in the reverse, v'schar avera, and the reward of a sin, k'neged hefseidah. What's the reward of the sin? What do you gain by doing a sin? And what do you lose by doing a sin? And you, if you try to calculate, if you try to assign values to the pros and the cons of your actions, invariably he's telling you, you're not going to sin. Because the cost-benefit analysis will, will show that you gain a lot from mitzvos and you lose comparative, comparatively very little, whereas you lose a lot from sins and you gain very little. And finally, he tells you his stakel b'shloshedvarim, which means literally to look, to examine, to scrutinize three things, and you won't sin. You will not you won't come into the grip of sin. What are these three things? Know what's above you. What's above you? Eye in roa, an observant eye, the ozen shomas, and an attentive ear. Cholmasecha v'sefer nechtavim, and all your deeds are recorded in a book. You look at those three things and you won't sin. So there's a lot here to unpack. So let's begin with the first clause, the first teaching of Rabbi Judah the Prince, which is, which path should you choose? And he tells you, choose a path that gives you both honor from yourself, internal honor, and honor from other people. Personal distinction, distinction from others. Some sort of balanced approach that gives you everything. Have your cake and eat it too. So what does this, what does this mean? So all the commentaries offer their own spin on the matter. So, for example, the, Ra- the Rambam, he tells us in his commentary, in his explanation of this Mishnah, he understands it as referring to personal traits, personal character. There's always there's always a there's a spectrum of character. Every midah, every characteristic, every trait that we have, there's the most extreme in one side, and there's the most extreme in the other side. And there's also the middling path. There's also the, the sweet spot in the middle. And the Rambam, in wherever he talks about character, he always lauds the middle and balanced path, not to be too far in either extreme. And he explains that this is what Rabbi Judah the Prince is telling us over here. What's the proper path? It means that with every mida, with every characteristic that you have, what's the proper path? He says, it's not too much in either way. In either way, there's still distinction for yourself and there's still distinction for others. And if you have that balance where you, you have everything, then you're doing what's appropriate. And in fact, the Rambam famously in his uh, book of Mada, 
which is the first of his 14 books of the Yad HaZaka, otherwise known as the Mishnah Torah, which is the Rambam's complete retelling of oral Torah in written form. 14 books, incredible work, one of the most uh, significant works of the past millennium. So he writes in, in, in the first book, it's broken down to five sections, section called Deos, which means knowledges, literally, but it means also Midos, character. And he goes on at great length on this point that there's always going to be a balance and the sweet spot in the middle is where you want to, where you want to be. And just an example of how this plays out. So one of the commentaries uh, elaborates in the room and he gives an example with regards to how they spend their money. You have someone who's entirely miserly. They don't want to share. They don't want to give charity. They don't want to do good for others. They want to keep everything close to themselves. Well, then, then they have personal distinction for themselves. They're very rich. They don't, they don't share, but they're very rich. So they're, they're, they're kind of embracing the first instruction of Rabbi Judah the Prince to have glory for yourself. But other people don't laud them for that. They're not, it's not viewed positive by other people. And then you have the guy on the other side who is very profligate giver and gives everything away. Everyone lauds them, but then they're a pauper. And then they don't have what to feed their family with. They're not taking care of themselves. And if you're not taking care of yourself or you're not taking care of others, then you're not doing what's what's proper. Uh, I just heard recently that uh, the Baal Shem Tov, he w- made a policy to never go to sleep at night with any money in his house. So if he has any money, give it away to charity, give it away to other people. But that's the Baal Shem Tov. That's not for us. Uh, we have to keep a balance. You know, we you, you give some, you try to help others, but not too much that it's going to make your life impossible to live unless you have otherworldly faith. I have an uncle who passed away in 2001. He was the chief rabbi of the city of Antwerp. His name was Rabbi Chaim Kreisworth. And he was one of the greatest Talmud scholars that uh, the 20th century saw. He knew all of Talmud by heart. Most people, they don't study Talmud in their lifetimes. He knew it all by heart. And in fact, he would give these lectures, and this was his shtick. He would give a lecture, and he would have no notes in front of him. And he would quote Talmud verbatim. And he would read just pages upon pages of Talmud. He was a very dramatic speaker, very charismatic, with a booming voice. But then every time he would, like, if there was a real book in Talmud, because all Talmud editions, they all have the same layout. So he would kind of add flair to his speech. He's quoting the Talmud, and then he would go like this with his hands, as if he's turning the page. He made this like elaborate motion as if he's turning a page in an invisible book in front of him to just show the re- the listener that, oh, we're now on the next side of the page of uh, of the imaginary Talmud, which doesn't there's no actual book in front of him. He was one of those people that would that would be able to do the pin test. The pin test is where you take an imaginary pin and you put it in any line of Talmud, and as if the pin's going through the whole book. And you gotta tell me which letter is it cutting through. In the next 80 pages. I mean, such complete mastery of Talmud. Unbelievable. It's a combination of great intellect and great diligence. That two coming together when studying Torah, together with divine assistance, it just creates otherworldly genius. I have an uncle. Not This was my great uncle, Chief Rabbi Vantor. I have an uncle who's a rabbi in Haifa, in the city, northern Israel. And he also could do this. You read him any line, any line of Talmud, it'll tell you which book of Talmud, which page it's on. Unbelievable. It's possible that it's photographic memory, but it's, it's also possible that we underestimate the latent intellectual capacity that we all have. And we don't push ourselves 
to the nth degree. And and one of the great things about studying Talmud is that its depth is so beyond anything you could possibly imagine in that we could possibly obtain with our intellect that it will if you study properly, it will necessarily push you to your limits. So if you want to know the limits of your own intellectual ability, then you study Talmud and then it pushes you because whatever its limits, they go way beyond yours and therefore studying it will push you to your limits and studying it with diligence and with consistency and uh, with intensity will turn you into someone who's able to actualize and maximize your potential, bring it out to the forefront. Uh, so this uncle of mine, he was remarkable with respect to not only Torah mastery, but also kindness. He was something out of this world. And he was someone who who they had to stop giving him his paycheck in the city. This He was he was a, the official rabbi of the, of the city of, of Antwerp. They had to stop giving him his paycheck because he would take a paycheck. And before he got home, he'd give it all out. So I had to find a workaround because he was just – so incredible with his with his kindness, and it was like the kind of the, this unique confluence of someone who's such a great Torah scholar and someone who's also such a tremendous kindness. That's an exception. For us, we're encouraged to find the middle ground, to be generous and to be giving, but not to be too much that you don't have your own personal dignity maintained. So that's an idea here, and that's the way uh, the Rambam explains this teaching of Rabbi Judah the Prince. Uh, Rashi has a very simple understanding. He says, just all this is, this whole Mishnah is talking about doing mitzvahs and not doing sins. Therefore, he says, well, what's a mitzvah? A mitzvah is something which is good for you because it makes you a better person. It also makes you someone who has willpower because a mitzvah demands of something that may be difficult for you to do. And therefore, it, it boosts who you are as a person. And also, people look at you and you're more refined in your character and you're more pleasant in your interactions with other, with other people. And therefore, it's it's good for you. It makes you a better person. And it makes you more distinguished in the eyes of others. That's what he's telling you. Choose mitzvos and not the other way around. Now, there's another explanation here, which is a little bit kind of a, of the next level understanding. Of course, we're encouraged to do mitzvos. And we're encouraged to eschew Averos sins, obviously. That's the whole Torah is about that. But there's all these opportunities that we have that seem to be mitzvos, but maybe could be tainted with sin. This is, again, this is the next level. A simple level, do mitzvos, refrain from sin. The next level is you should know that there is a possibility that maybe the motivations or, or various consequences of a mitzvah that may actually make the whole mitzvah not worthy doing and therefore, here we're told that what is the way you should select? Which path should you select? Now, in Hebrew, the word select is sheyivor. But it also can mean from the word baru, from the, from the word clarity. It's just like when you have clarity, you make a selection. But those words have overlap. So my grandfather wrote an, an essay on this particular point, And he says that when you do – when you make a choice – you want to make sure that there's clarity in that choice, that you know that that, that it's not like there's, there's, there's doubt. There's not, it's, not, it's not a cloudy decision. It's, it's, it's clear as day that you're doing it and, it and it's okay and it's not going to be something that ultimately the net effect is bad. So I heard a story this week about this 
idea with respect to a member of the faculty of a, of a yeshiva. So in a typical yeshiva structure, there's there's two heads of the yeshiva. There's what's called the Rosh Yeshiva, which is the head of the yeshiva. And then it was called the Mashkiach, which is the spiritual dean of the yeshiva. And they each have different roles. And the lectures that they give, the Rosh Yeshiva is going to give the lecture on the Talmud. And the Mashkiach is going to give a lecture on the more, on the ethical and philosophical aspects of, of Jewish living and of Torah. So there's once a, um, a very dynamic rabbi in Jerusalem. His name is Rabbi Shalom Shwadron. And he was renowned for his speeches. Very charismatic, very entertaining, very funny, very powerful. And he was once given an offer. There was a mashkiach in a given yeshiva who, for health reasons, was not able to perform his functions for several months. And they needed a replacement. They need to plug in a replacement. And would he be willing to take over the job of the mashkiach, the permanent one, for a few months till he heals and he's able to resume his activities? Well, that seems like it's a great mitzvah. There's 100, 200, 300 students you can influence for a few months. And you could give the speeches, and you could play the role of the mashkiach until the full-time mashkiach gets back to his health and is able to resume his, his role. Sounds like it's a win-win, slam dunk. The only problem is, is that he knew that he had a great power of oratory, and he also had a, a magnetic personality. And he was very funny. He would tell stories that people even asked him, like, why are you telling them stories? Like, why are you telling jokes? Like, why is that he's supposed to teach Musser, he said? He says to them, you have a kid who doesn't want medicine. So you tickle them. Once their mouth is open, you shove the medicine in. That's what I do. I do the same thing. I, the people resisting to Musser, they don't want to hear about all these lessons of ethical perfection and refinement. I make them laugh, and then boom, when their mouth is open, I make sure I can stick it in. I can stick in the lesson. That was his idea. But he knew that he had this power. And he's going to get there. And he's going to give uh, uh, lectures for a few months. And he's going to be so popular. And he's going to wow everyone. And he's going to really do a great job. But what's going to happen when the full-time Mashiach gets back? He's back from his illness. And he comes up and he gives a lecture. I was like, kind of missed the other guy. And he's going to have a hard time influencing the students because he has kind of big shoes to fill. Is it worth it? So he went to Reb Chatzel Levenstein, who was one of the great Muslim masters, and he presented him this question. He said to him, you know what? You shouldn't do it. Even though for these few months, you might have a great impact, but is it as clear as day? Are you making the right choice? Or maybe there's something problematic with this decision. Maybe you should avoid it. So this is, again, next level thinking, which is not only to think about it in, in black and white terms, but to think about a mitzvah and a deed that, or a choice, a path, two, two options. What are all the consequences of choice A versus choice B? And therefore, if you realize that, that, that there is a negative or a, a significant negative byproduct of one of the choices, even though on the surface it seems like it's a great idea, it's this, how could you lose? Think about kind of deeply your behavior and try to find – or your choices, your options and try to make sure that's the right choice from all vantage points. And if it's not, maybe it's something that's worthy of uh, foregoing. Now, in the Ruach Chaim, 
which is the commentary on Pirkei Avos written by Reb Chaim Velazhenor, he has, I think, like 10 or, 10 or 12 different explanations for this first clause of the Mishnah. So again, we're not giving you everything. If I did, we could spend the whole talk just on this first clause. But there's one of them that I thought was very counterintuitive and very powerful. And I want to share it. So what does he say? He says, which path should you choose? Something which is glorious for the, the one who does it and glorious in front of the, in the eyes of others. And you read it literally, it seems like, do something, choose a path that gives you glory. And typically, we're not used to talking in those terms. No, you should be more modest. You should be more kind of under the radar. What is this idea? You should choose a path that gives you glory. We're told to flee from honor. That's one of the big, the big things of, of Torah, to avoid honor. So what does this mean? So that's why everyone has all their interpretations of what this means. But he, in one of his commentaries, one of his explanations, he says, yes, that's exactly what it's telling us. And uh, this is one of his themes that he revis- revisits in a lot of his his books and his, and his writings. And he says, he says, the num- number one most important criterion for success to achieve purity, to achieve fear of God, to achieve closeness to God, is consistency. That's the most important thing. Only via consistency can you possibly actually change. And there's this idea that we, we talk about a lot, that there's 40 days. You do something for 40 days, it's habit changing, it's habit forming. So if someone says, okay, I want to I wanna learn how to pray. You do it for 40 days, it becomes a habit. It's not hard. First day, it's really hard because you're not used to praying and you're going against your inborn innate char- uh, character. But after 40 days, you change your inborn innate character. But you take a two days off, you got to start 40 days again. Therefore, consistency is the way to actually achieve long-term change. But the problem with consistency is that to do something every day, well, every day is different. Some days you're in the mood. Some days you're not in the mood. Some days you're not in the mood. Some days you have tons of time. Sometimes you don't have tons of time. Some days things just work out. Sometimes you're very busy. Like there's there's so many different factors that go in. But also, sometimes you say, "Wait a minute. I'm not sure I'm doing this for the right reasons. Maybe I'm studying Torah because other people should praise me for it. Maybe I'm studying Torah so I should get reward." Maybe I'm studying Torah for all the wrong reasons. And maybe I should wait till I'm, till I'm in the, in, in the zone. I should, I shouldn't pray because I'm not ready to talk to God. And then what's going to happen? You're going to wait the whole day and maybe you'll forget to talk to God. I mean, you forget to pray or maybe you'll pray it's too late. Or maybe you won't study, won't study Torah. Says the Mishnah. Do mitzvot, choose the path that is, brings you glory, that brings you honor, that brings you distinction. Wait a minute. Am I supposed to choose mitzvahs that don't bring me decision? Yes. Why are we told to choose mitzvahs, to choose a path that brings me honor and distinction? That's the point. If you're going to have consistency, not every day will you manage to do it perfectly with everything firing all cylinders, everything ideal. Some days you have to do mitzvahs, what's called shalolishma, not for its intended purposes, for ulterior motives, because you want honor. But you know what? In aggregate, on balance, the ultimate indicator of success is going to be consistency. And consistency is more important than doing it every time perfectly.
So it's better to do 40 days consistently than to do 25 days perfectly. So do 25 days as best you can and 15 days, do it so you want honor. Do it so you get distinction. Do it so other people look up to you. Do it for all the wrong reasons, but ultimately that will change you and that will actually affect who, uh, how you're going to live your life. He quotes many, many sources here. Uh, for example, the very famous source that appears many times in the Torah, this appears multiple times in the Talmud. A person should always engage in Torah and mitzvot, even with its inappropriate intentions or not its ideal intentions. Why? Because doing it that way, doing it with ulterior motives, will ultimately ultimately lead you to doing it with the proper motives. And he gives other sources. He says, listen, there's power in Torah. Quotes the Talmud appears in Sanhedrin, amongst other places, that quotes a verse, the verse is Kipatish, he potes Sela. Torah is like a hammer that shatters a rock. Which on one hand means that just like if you take a hammer, you shatter a rock, there's shards going in all different directions. So too, with study of Torah, there's so many different things you can learn. But also it says that we know that the Yitzhahara, the evil inclination, is compared to a rock, to a stone, a stone heart. And we always pray to get rid of the stone heart and replace it with the flesh heart, which is a way of saying, let's get rid of all the problems that we have within us. How do you do that? With Torah. Torah is the hammer that shatters the rock, that shatters the stone. And that is its power. And therefore, if you do it consistently, you'll achieve the goal. Yes, it won't be ideal necessarily, but consistency trumps doing it perfectly. And therefore, what the Mishnah is telling us, even if your mitzvah you're doing is because it brings you honor, if that is what's necessary to maintain consistency, you have to do it. Powerful idea. Next clause in the Mishnah. You should be as careful, as fastidious, as scrupulous in a minor mitzvah as you would be in performing a major mitzvah. So Rabbeinu Yonah points out there is a hierarchy of negative mitzvos, but not a hierarchy of positive mitzvos. And it's one of those interesting things where we know that there's 365 negative mitzvos, prohibitions, things you can't do, as told in the Torah, and there's 248 positive mitzvos, things that you're encouraged to do. And he gives an example. He says, well, if you look at the negative side, at the restrictions, there's some restrictions that are so bad, well, it's 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 punishable, it's it's capital punishment. And then there's others which are capital punishment, but that's in the hands of God. And there's others which get you cut off from the Jewish people. And there's others that your children die. And this in fact this week's partial, we saw a few of those. And there's others, and even within capital punishment, there's four different levels. All these levels, and there's ones which are just a prohibition, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Everything kind of fit into one of like ten categories. Whereas when you look at the positive side. You don't see these gradients of mitzvahs, of which one is the best mitzvah, the most important mitzvah, which one is the least important mitzvah. We don't see that. And he quotes the Midrash. The Midrash says here, you have a king who wants to plant an orchard. And the orchard should be a diverse orchard with all kinds of trees. But he's going to pay the workers a different amount for, for each tree, for the different trees. But if he reveals the prices that he's going to pay beforehand. So he's going to give $100 for every apple tree, but only $20 for every orange tree. 
So what's everyone going to plant? The incentives are aligned. Everyone's going to plant just the just the apple trees. And then what's going to look like? He's got this orchard, and it's not going to have the diversity that he wanted because it's only apple trees. Because everyone, of course, is following their incentives. And therefore, what does he do? He doesn't tell them ahead of time what the price is going to be for each of the trees. And therefore, he says, just do them. And everyone will do all of them. And then that's how achieve the desired results. Similarly, with regards to mitzvahs, the Almighty wants all the mitzvahs. And he says, you may think that there's more major mitzvahs, there's more minor mitzvahs. I'm not going to tell you the reward of mitzvahs. And that way, you'll do it all. And the Talmud points out something very fascinating. There's two mitzvahs that tell us the reward of the mitzvah in the actual instruction of the mitzvah. Number one, you should honor your parents, father and mother. You'll have a long life. Number two, you should send away the mother bird before taking the baby bird. You'll have a long life. So, like, what's the overlap between these two mitzvahs? Like, why specifically these two mitzvahs are we told that we are getting a long life? And the Talmud notes is that the most severe mitzvah, the most strict mitzvah, the most the mitzvah with the most perils is honoring your father and mother. The Talmud goes as far as to say that one of the great rabbis was so happy that he was born an orphan, which of course sounds counterintuitive. Why would you say that? Because when you study just how much honor a child has to accord to his father, his or her father or mother, and how dangerous it is if you make a misstep, because like you, the honor of your father is like the honor of God. It's like the honor of God. It's like it's equivalent honor your father and mother and honor God. You, how easy it is to make a mistake. So the great rabbi even says, oh, "I'm so lucky I was born without parents." Of course, we wouldn't uh, encourage that. But in a way, when you study those laws, that reaction is is, is possible. It's the most severe mitzvah. Whereas the most easy mitzvah, it's the mitzvah of sending away the mother bird. You don't even need to do anything. In fact, you don't even need to go to the forest and look for nests. It's only if you happen to find a nest and you want to eat, take the baby birds, send away the mother first. Says the Talmud, this is the most severe mitzvah and the most minor mitzvah, and it tells us both of them have the same reward. Which is a way of saying that it's not, I'm not telling you what the reward is, because both of them will tell you the same reward, the most major mitzvah and the most minor mitzvah. The Mighty wants to do all to do all the mitzvahs, and therefore he did not tell us which mitzvah results in which reward. We just have to know, we've got to do try to do them all. Another way of maybe looking at this uh, is in light of what the Talmud says. The Talmud says that there's 248 mitzvahs. And there's 248 limbs. And the idea being, quite simply, that each limb that a person has, there's the physical limb and there's a spiritual limb. It's all a mirror image of each other. The body and the soul are mirror images of each other. And therefore, if you want to live in a spiritual world, you have to make sure that you have a spiritual entity that can live in a spiritual world. So we have a body, right? You have 10 fingers, you have arms, hopefully, right? Please, God, we should all be complete and healthy. And you have your eyeballs and you have your legs. Like there's a lot of different limbs and there's internal organs. That's what you need to live here in this world. Well, what do you need to live there in the next world, the spiritual world? Well, you need the same thing. You need 248 spiritual limbs to create the spiritual body to live in the spiritual world. That's what we're told in the Talmud. Well, how do you make those spiritual limbs? How do you earn the rights and the credits to have those limbs have vitality? 
248 mitzvahs, corresponding to 248 limbs. Each mitzvah is going to earn you life in one of those limbs. That's what we're told in the Talmud. So the question I get asked every time I say that is, okay, list for me the limbs and the corresponding mitzvah. And every time I tried to find the answer to that question, I couldn't find it because there is no comprehensive list. And the, the reason why there is no comprehensive list is because of this teaching in Rebbe Judah the Prince. Do each mitzvah, the minor ones and the major ones, because you don't know the reward for the mitzvah. You don't know which one of them is your pinky toe on your left foot, maybe not as important as your liver or as your, your eyeballs. You don't know. And it's possible that one mitzvah that you think, eh, not so important, it might be the one that's even m- most important or very vital, and therefore you got to do them all. Because you don't know which one is necessary to make sure you have life in the spiritual world. But I would add that even people will say, you know what, Rabbi, tell me which mitzvah corresponds to my brain and which one corresponds to my heart. People will say, who ask that question. If I were to ask them to volunteer, to give me one of their, give me one of their pinkies. Ah, do you really need a pinky? Come on. You have nine other fingers. What do you really need the pinky for? Even when people drink a drink, drink, they, when people drink a cup, they just hold their pinky up. They don't even need it to hold the cup. <laughs> so how important is it really? Is there any volunteers? Of course not. Why not? What do you have to lose? Well, we all we all innately realize that each one of our t- <laughs> each one of our 248 limbs is important and we're not willing to forfeit it. And that's how it works in this world. Certainly in the spiritual world, the eternal world, how much more so is every even minor mitzvah important because each minor mitzvah corresponds to one of those limbs that we don't want to part from because we want to have the whole thing. And similarly, says Rabbi Judah the Prince, you want to have the whole thing? Got to do the whole thing. Got to do, don't neglect even the things that are more compatible. Let's say you did know which mitzvahs uh, corresponded to which limbs, still you should not forfeit or part with any one of those mitzvahs because even the most minor limbs that we have we don't want to give up. And there's another uh, realm, there's another idea here. Big mitzvos, little mitzvos. Major mitzvos, minor mitzvos. Big deeds, little deeds. There's this idea here, we're told in the Mishnah, there's many other sources to this effect, that even the little things are important. Even the minor things are important. And my grandfather, in his... Uh, amazing book, Ale Shur, Volume 2. So he has an entire section dedicated to what's called Avodah Musarit, which means literally Musar, ethical work, which is a guidebook if someone wants to actually perfect themselves and achieve ethical refinement, step-by-step instructions. That's what the book is, or part of that, that section of the book. But he begins with an introduction, which he writes, says, this is what you need to do before you do Musar work. And one of the things he talks about is, is small deeds, small actions. And he goes on to explain here that like we think of big ideas. And certainly with Torah, there's an emphasis on, on greatness and Talmud and all these big things. But with regards to action, to actual behavior, everything hinges specifically 
on small deeds, on little things. And he gives an example. He says, there's a perfect parallel. We live in this big world and this big cosmos and all these things, all these, it's, it's, it's a very vast world. But if you actually break it down, everything's made up of these tiny atoms, which are so small, you have to look at a microscope to see them. Even though, yes, the cumulative result is something very vast, but fundamentally, everything is made up of these small things. And similarly, so like if you want to build what he calls a spiritual edifice of man, that is built exactly the same way as the physical world is built. Tiny, tiny little things that are almost on their own, not they're tiny, they're invisible, they're imperceptible, they're, they're, they're useless. One atom is nothing. You need to have millions and billions of them to make something significant. But ultimately, it's built of, the, of those small things together, similarly with regards to our own spiritual makeup that we want to build with Musser, it's done with small actions, the, the more minor things. And he's like, this, this is going to be, revolutionize our thinking. When someone wants to fix the world, he thinks of some worldly organization for peace or for justice. And similarly, if you want to, if you want to change yourself, you, we are inclined to think the same way. To think of something really big in, in righteousness or piety or holiness. But the small, minor actions that aren't very difficult, we tend to think of them as not as valuable. But the truth is that it's specifically from the small deeds that a person is built. And he gives another example. He says, imagine you, you, you look at... Uh, at medicine, at pharmacology, the actual agent in the medicine that provides the healing is is tiny. It could be like a, a, a milligram, of, so small. And sometimes they even add all this other stuff to make it like even a pill that's even big enough. Similarly, if we want to kind of deal with our own maladies, our own character maladies, we have to look at those small, little, tiny things that give the healing and not too much. And actually, to the contrary, if you give someone a medicine, but you give them too high of a dose, you give them too much, it actually can have a negative consequence. It's exactly the same way. If you want to heal yourself, you have to do give yourself only a little bit of the medicine, and that will ultimately result in us changing. And then he adds another point. Every time someone does something to try to change their character, and to change their habits, and to overcome what the Yetzirah, they are necessarily going to evoke backlash. If someone says, you know what, I'm going on a diet. It's always the best example. You go on a diet, and you say, okay, I'm not going to eat no carbs and no sugar and no flour for a month. What happens a week later? Because they're, they're fighting themselves so much, they're actually like winding up their inherent Yetzirah, <coughs> their inherent Yetzirah, and it's going to spring back and backlash even worse. They're going to go a week later on, a, on this food eating binge, and it's going to ultimately result in ending up worse than where they started off. The way to do it is to do small changes. And he gives another example. He says when he, after the Yom Kippur War, he flew to Egypt. And he says that the plane that he's on, the Israeli military plane. He went there to, to speak to the troops. 
but the plane started dipping and it was flying like only a few meters above the ground. And he's all worried. Like he speaks to him, like, what did, was something wrong with the engines? What happened? He's like, no, no, no. There's Egyptian radar. And we want to evade the Egyptian radar with the Jewish plane, and therefore we're flying so low to the ground. It says, oh, that's exactly what it's like. If you want to change yourself, you have to evade the Yetzirah's radar. You have to fly under it. Do small little things, small, small actions that don't evoke a backlash, and doing that will hopefully, cumulatively, allow you to overcome your innate uh, character maladies and fix them in a way that will actually yield lasting results. So that's what this this thing here is. We're told in the in the Mishnah, don't ignore the little things. Not just because little things are also important, because the little things are actually the ones that are going to bring about the lasting change. And they're the ones that are not going to suffer the same consequence as the big deeds, as the big actions, as the big thought experiments of trying to change everything with this one grand idea, they're actually going to be more successful in the long term. Very powerful idea from the book Alay Shur, authored by my grandfather in volume two. And let us proceed. What is the next clause of the Mishnah? Cost-benefit analysis of actions. And it's one of those interesting things uh, that we see in our life. Like if you're a financial advisor or you're uh, buying a house or you're making an important decision, you are trained to try to weigh the benefits of either option. If you have two choices, weigh the benefits of either option. And here we're told that every deed, every choice that we have, we have a mitzvah, we have a sin, it's before us. We should try to figure out just simply, and this is like a logical thing that we're told to do and that makes tons of sense. What do I gain? What do I lose? And you're always going to gain and lose some. There's pros and cons for either option. And as a general rule, the sin... Well, that is oriented on improving your status and optimizing your status as a body in this world. Whereas the mitzvah is optimizing the status of your soul in the spiritual world. That's almost invariably the trade-off. But, you know, if you, if, you know, when we travel every year uh, to Canada and we have to drive from Houston to Canada and you got to cut through the whole United States which is lovely. The country is so large and so beautiful, thanks to the French for selling it to us for $3 million. We appreciate that. Um, but the one problem is that there's not a lot of kosher food between here and Canada. And it's the whole American heartland, it's almost bereft of, of kosher food. There's no, almost no kosher. So there's one kosher restaurant in Memphis that we visit every year. Holy cow, check it out. <laughs> it's a free plug for them in the JCC in, in Memphis. We go there every year, and the kids love it. And every year they look forward to the chicken and holy cow. Um, but I actually spoke to someone who lives in Memphis. He's like, "Ah, yeah, it's too much. I can't handle it." It's like, well, if you go there once a year, it's very exciting. <laughs> Anyhow, so but you drive through all the like Arkansas. There's no kosher food. There's, there's, yes, there's kosher food in the freezer section and in, in Kroger, sure. But there's no there's no restaurants. And nothing like St. Louis. There's maybe like one pizza shop. Cincinnati was a disaster. We stopped there. Um, there's, 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 it's a very limited amount of kosher food. Well, we're exclusively kosher, thank God. But you know what? There is in absolute abundance 
non-kosher food. Tons of it. Every corner. And it's like, it's one of those things that like, when we travel, you have to make all these calculations. Like, where are we going to stop? Where are we going to eat? Should we bring food with us? How much will we bring? Should we bring? Last time, we, one time we, we brought a grill with us and we and, and an icebox and you bring some meat and you stop on the side of the road and you make a little barbecue. The kids come on around. But this is a calculation that someone who's not kosher never even thinks about. You can travel wherever you want in the whole world without even thinking once about food. I spoke uh, recently about my father who went to India and, and he would have to brush his teeth with a, with a Coca-Cola. He would have to bring all his food with him. It's just the way it is. You're going to travel to, to Mumbai or wherever. There isn't abundance of kosher food in every, every corner. And that's like a calculation you have to make when you're a kosher consumer. And that is, you know, it's very hard. Of course, for, for me, I wouldn't think twice about it. Like there's no – in my world, I'm not even going to consider. You say, you know what? We're traveling. Let's stop off at the Whataburger or uh, McDonald's. Um, I've never tasted it. I heard it's great. But I've never tasted it. Yeah. This is like a reality of every time we travel. And every time every time we travel, I think of it like, wouldn't it be nice if you didn't have to worry at all about food wherever you went? It would be amazing. But, you know, if someone is approaching this, that, that this is a choice. Like, on one hand, there's amazing conveniences on the non-kosher lifestyle. And that is something that ha- he tells you, calculate that. Calculate the what you're going to gain – with a sin, it's important. But you also have to calculate what you're going to lose. So the Torah tells us is that you eat non-kosher food, you cause your heart to clam up and not to be able to connect to God. So if you just kind of zoom out and look at a thousand years and say, okay, what am I going to gain by eating this non-kosher food? And what am I going to lose? And if you put a thousand-year time horizon on this question – well, are you really going to give up your opportunity to connect to God, climbing up your heart because a convenience of stopping by the side of the road and picking up a burger? Is that worth it? That's what he's telling us to make that calculation. And similarly with the mitzvah. Every mitzvah you do, you're giving up something else. If it wasn't difficult, if it didn't have some sort of bar obsolete you had to overcome, you know, you, there's something you have to give up. You have to forfeit. So it's, not, it's not a mitzvah without overcoming something. But what do you gain? You're fulfilling the will of the Almighty. Think about it. If you're the president, always a bad example because political, whatever. But if you're the king and the king said, do something for me, and you went blatantly and disobeyed, think how bad that would be. Think how eager you would be to do something for the king. And here you have the king of all kings, the king with no term limits, the king with no checks and balances, who knows everything that you do. And he tells you, he asks you, you're my child, do this for me. Wow, and you're able to do that? What a mitzvah. But wait a minute, I'm giving up, uh, it takes five minutes of my time. There was a, uh, there was a, an unnamed synagogue. There was a question of how they were going to do their divorce documents. There are, if you want to, someone wants to get divorced, of course it's sad, of course, but the things, you know, things happen. And there's a whole book in Talmud called the Book of Gittin, which is how to do it. And how you have to write the divorce document. You have to make certain lines and you have to certain responsibilities and of how you have the precision of how you have to write it and who and the witnesses and and to do it properly you need about forty five minutes to an hour. So there was a uh, a synagogue that will remain unnamed and said, You know what? 
too hard for us to do it the proper way. 400 minutes an hour, too long. Let's think in faster. We got to do it faster. We don't want to cause too much problems. So again, what does that, what does that mean? There's a mitzvah. How are you supposed to get divorced? And, but it's an inconvenience. But what is the benefits of doing the mitzvah? What are the benefits of, so the conveniences are an hour of time you save. But what do you, what do you gain by doing the mitzvah? Well, according to the Torah, by every halachic standard, the woman is actually divorced. If you do it improperly, the woman's not divorced. So she gets married to someone else. She thinks she's divorced. But really, she's not divorced. She's still married to the original guy. And all her children that she has with the next guy, they're all bastards. They're all Ill- illegitimate. And then their children are also bastards. They're also Ill- Ill- illegitimate. So you saved an hour, but how much did you lose? And how much would you gain if you are willing to put in that hour? That's what he's telling us. Like It's just the outsized benefits of mitzvahs are always going to outweigh what you're going to lose for those mitzvahs, the loss that you're going to incur by doing the mitzvah. And the negative consequences of the sin are always going to outweigh what you're going to gain by the sin. That's a fact. And therefore, Rabbi Judah Prince is telling us, how do you make sure that you choose the right path? How do you choose the path of mitzvahs? What is the simple tactic you could use to obey the mitzvahs and to withhold from sin? Make a calculation. Make cost-benefit analysis. Just list what you gain, what you lose, and make an informed choice. So why is it so hard? This seems so logical. So why is it so hard? The answer is that we don't always approach things logically. And in an, in an upcoming project that I'm working on, I wrote an essay about this particular dilemma. Uh, and the way it's framed is that we know Adam, before he sinned, Adam and Eve, that is, before they sinned, they didn't have a Yetzahara, evil inclination. They didn't have it. And the obvious question is, wait a minute, if they didn't have an evil inclination, how is it possible to sin? If you have nothing propelling you to sin, how is it possible to sin? That's the question. And the answer is, is that there's a Yetzahara, evil inclination, does not create a choice to sin. It doesn't. It just alters the nature of that choice. Adam had a choice to sin or not to sin. He had that choice. He didn't have a Yitzhahara, so it didn't change the nature of the choice, but the choice was there regardless. So what is a choice without the Yitzhahara? And what is a choice with the Yitzhahara? What's the difference between the choices that are influenced by the Yitzhahara and the choices that are uninfluenced by the Yitzhahara? What's the to the choices of Adam priest and Adam post-sin? The answer is, is what kind of choices? Pre-sin, they were logical choices, Post-sin, they are lustful choices. What the Yetzirah does is that it takes a logical choice and it makes it a lustful choice. That's what it does. It means that you're not approaching it logically. And therefore, post-sin, it's a much more difficult choice because you can't approach things logically or it's hard to approach things logically or you're not initially oriented to approach things logically because Naive Yitzhah which adds a lustful dimension upon the choice and makes it much more difficult to appreciate it and to evaluate it logically. So in a sense, what Rabbi Judah the Prince is encouraging us here to do is to try to restore as many choices, <coughs> to try to restore as many choices as possible to their pre-sin nature, try to restore choices to the way they were before Adam sinned, to remove the Yitzhah from the equation and without the Yitzhah 
you can approach things logically. And if you do approach things logically, it's not a guarantee. It's not a fail-safe way to make sure you make the right choice, but it's quite likely that you will. So again, he's telling us something that sounds very, very logical, but most of the times we're not inclined to do it because that's a different kind of choice than we are initially presented. And what we're encouraged here to do is to revert the choice back to the way it was pre-sin to try to take the Yetzirah, the lustful element of choices, and excise it from the equation and approach things only logically. By doing that, it's much more easier to overcome the decision and to make the right choice. The Mishnah concludes, look at three things and you will not sin. Know what's above you, a seeing eye, a hearing ear, a tentative ear, and all your deeds are written in a book. So basically, it's this idea that your actions are being tallied by God, and you're going to have to uh, give an accounting and a reckoning for those deeds. Now, it's interesting. What Rabbi Judah the Prince does not tell us is what I told you. He doesn't say that God keeps track of everything that you do. That's not what he says. Even that's what's implied. And that's what we can infer from it. But what he says is that what's above you, a seeing eye, a listening ear, and a Things are being written in a book. So he's giving us very vivid descriptions. And the reason behind that is that it's not just enough for us, for, for us to be told the principle. The principle we know. God Does God know everything? Of course God knows everything. That is not what he's coming to convey. He's coming to convey that the way for you to use that information in a way that's valuable, in a way that's transformative, is by bringing it to life by thinking about an eye watching you, think about an ear listening, think about a book being written, making it real to yourself. And even the, the way it starts off, his stakel, look at it, means try to visualize it. It's not enough to know the principle. Does God know everything? Oh, of course God knows everything. So what? If you think about a way to bring this to life, to bring it, to make it real, to make it tangible, to make it palpable, to make it alive within you. Visualize these three things. Think about it in a way that's transformative and then you, and then you won't sin. Not, it's not enough to know the principle. You have to, you have to examine the principle. You have to ruminate upon it by making it visualized. There is a, a statement from the Chavetz Chaim, the great Chavetz Chaim, the great leader of Jewish people in the early part of the 20th century and the end of the 19th century. So he was uh, there when they invented the camera and the phonograph and all these transformative technologies. And he said, he says, the reason why the Almighty put in the, in the minds of the inventors the ability to invent these specific things, it's to give you a picture, no pun intended, of how God works. Like we know that there's probably cameras in the room. And maybe there are cameras here, there's cameras outside, there's cameras by every, uh, every, every street corner, there's cameras everywhere. And, in China, there's really cameras everywhere. And in Saudi Arabia or Dubai, when the Mossad guys did the hit on the uh, on the Hamas terrorist, the security forces there actually videotaped them every step that they were. They followed them from the airport to the hotel room because the whole place is blanketed in cameras. The reason why these technologies exist is to give us a picture of what God's like, of, of how God oversees our actions. Just imagine there's a camera. That's what he's telling us. There's an eye watching you. There's a camera following you every day. It's like one of those drones that they have today that could hover over a person and just monitor everything. And there's the walls have ears. 
all these technologies are there to give us a picture. For, they're there for us to give us an image of what it's like. There's a book. Everything's being transcribed. Everything's there's a track of everything. And of course, it's a little uncomfortable. Like Big Brother, it's the ultimate Big Brother. But but it's not enough to just know that. It's telling us try to visualize it. And the more we realize just how important our actions are, think about it. the Almighty is watching what we're doing. What would, what is why does God care? It's a great question. But we know that He does. And specifically, he sees everything, he hears everything, he knows everything, everything's written down. And just what that does is actually amplifies our behavior. Our, our behavior matters. It's not just, ah, what is, what do I care? There's one of billions of people in this world and there's billions of exoplanets and there's trillions of, uh, there's so much going on. Does God really care about what I do? The answer is yes. Our actions matter. Our life has meaning. And therefore, because the world's in my hands, so to speak, the whole world is created for me. Everything I do, everything hinges on this world. Says the Rambam, quoting from the Talmud, a person should always imagine that the world is hanging in a balance. There's 50% of the deeds are mitzvahs, 50% of the deeds are sin, and your deed that you're about to do right now is going to shift, is going to tilt it one way or the other. You have the whole fate of the world in, in your hands. You are holding the nuclear fo- football. That's what we're told to do. We're told to think. You are. It's your hands. Should everyone live? Should everyone die? Now, of course... Not every decision evokes that response, but that's what you're supposed to calculate. That's how, supposed, that's how important your behavior is. That's what we're told. And here we're told, God, creator of heaven and earth, all the cosmos, everything, been around for eternity, beyond the scope of time and space. God cares about what I do. Wow, my actions really matter. Someone like that is going to pay much more attention to their their, their choices and says, Rabbi Julia Prince, if you just follow that principle and you integrate it and you implement it, you'll never Sin. An incredible Mishnah with so many very valuable, important lessons from Rajur the Prince and how to make sure that we live the life that is the best, that's the most valuable, that's the most rewarding, that's the most inspirational, that is the most lasting, and that's going to guarantee, stamp our golden ticket to Olam to give our life, to give our soul eternal life, and to make sure that we live out our potential.